Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Patrick Brown pens a book discussing his demise as PC leader. Hamilton's minority groups push for police service board candidates who can handle issues involving race. And what are Ontario's rules surrounding cannabis stores? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Now, Brampton Mayor and former Ontario Progressive Conservative leader Patrick Brown has uh, written a book. And, uh, it, well, to suggest that he's taking some shots at his uh, former colleagues in the Progressive Conservative Party, I think would be a massive understatement. Uh, Global News, uh, Alan Carter uh, sat down with Brown. And, uh, well, this is a little bit about what Brown put in the book about uh, one of his former colleagues. You write about uh, Minister Lisa McLeod quite mm-hmm. a bit in the book. Uh, there's some animosity there. Uh, c- certainly she was one of my uh, most uh, ferocious uh, uh, critics uh, in the party um, and uh, um, and frankly during my time as leader you know I did my best to reach out to her to protect her from nomination challenges uh, but I think in the in the days uh, after the resignation it was very apparent uh, that she was one of the people that was uh, um, making a coordinated effort to make sure that I wasn't the PC leader. You write that her staff think that she may have faked mental health issues to get attention. Do you believe that's true? So I believe you always need to give the benefit of the doubt to anyone that um, uh, claims uh, um, that they're going through adversity to, with, with mental health. Uh, obviously, when I was PC leader, I made a big focus on, on mental health. We made the largest commitment of mental health funding in Canadian provincial history in my uh, platform, the People's Guarantee. Um, but that was the concern of the Eastern Ontario organizers and members of, of her staff. Um, ultimately, um, I gave her the benefit of the doubt uh, um, and protected her and her nomination. Uh, she faced two challenges. But why, why would you write that? Do you, do you believe that, that she's faked mental health issues? No, I, I, I gave her the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but you put um, it in your book that those are concerns. Those were concerns that were raised by her staff and the Eastern Ontario uh, uh, chair. Yeah. Fair. Um, And and I think we try to highlight is throughout the time um, that I was leader, um, I did treat uh, Lisa McLeod well. I think the the inclusion that points that even when no one else wanted me to protect her um, when she was on the verge of losing a nomination, I went out of the way to um, protect her candidacy because I thought we need to treat everyone as as a team and despite my efforts to stick up for her uh, and treat her as a team member. Um, she was one of the people that uh, um, was most aggressive in trying to uh, overthrow the, the, the duly elected leader of the party. Well, former PC leader uh, Patrick Brown, now of course Mayor Brampton, now author uh, of this book. It's called Takedown, The Attempted Political Assassination of Patrick Brown. Alan Carter, uh, of course, is the uh, co-host of uh, Global News at 530 and 6 and the host of Focus Ontario, which is seen every weekend on Global TV. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the book. Alan, thanks so much for the time on a very busy Thursday. Appreciate you joining us today. Uh, no problem, Bill. Uh, good to be on. Well, let's uh, let's talk about this. You had to sit down with Patrick Brown on this. Uh, I guess <laughs> the, the op- he's, he's holding nothing back, obviously, in this book. Uh, well, you know, he's just one step short of blaming the Illuminati also for his uh, downfall because he pretty much blames everyone. Uh, it's a long list of grievances in this book, but he really saves uh, his harshest criticism for Lisa McLeod and also for uh, members of his staff who he claims were actively trying to overthrow him. 
That's a, a, a quite an, a, a, an accusation to make, and, and I, I know obviously we'll fill this out. Vic Fidelli is prominent in this, too, and we'll talk about that in just a couple of seconds. But if you to believe everything that's in this book anyway, Alan, uh, the knives were up for this guy the day he became leader. Yeah, and he, you know, he kind of goes through an itemized list of all of the people who were his enemies that didn't want him to take over the party and that he outworked and out-hustled everybody. And, you know, you keep in mind that when Mr. Brown won the leadership of the PC party, he only had the support of two members of caucus. Everybody else wanted uh, Christine Elliott in mm. the caucus. And then when he came in and said, well, you know what, I'm going to uh, reverse my stance on sex ed. Well, that didn't go over well with a bunch of people. And then he said, yeah, now I'm going to uh, um, approve a, a carbon pricing scheme. I'm all for cap and trade or some kind of carbon capture price, not cap and trade in, in particular. And, of course, that, that annoyed a whole lot of people. So what, what I think is interesting is is that as he blames everyone, and then, he, you know, at the end of the interview, I said, well, here's all of these things. You hired the staff. You did this. You did that. You did the other thing. You had that disastrous press conference. Aren't you to blame for your own downfall in some way? And he says, no. No, he doesn't take any responsibility for it. Notwithstanding some of the accusations that were leveled him at that time, including, the, of course, the report that, that CTV ran that particular night that really was the catalyst for that. He's uh, well, And, of course, there's legal action now for that, isn't there? Yeah, it's an $8 million defamation suit, and we should say the Global News contacted CTV, and again, CTV reiterated that it may stand by their story. Uh, Mr. Brown has uh, accused CTV of, of shoddy journalism, but I think that it's important to sort of take that out of, uh, you know, the uh, assessment of what happened to Mr. Brown. If you take Mr. Brown at his word, and remember there's a court action on that, if you take him at his word and that, that he is absolutely blameless um, of these accusations of sexual impropriety, you have to ask yourself, why is it that his staff and the caucus and a good portion of the party were so willing to huck him over and chuck him overboard the second he ran into trouble? Well, it's it's a question that he needs to answer, really. But he, he as as you indicate, uh, you know, there's the there's a whole idea right now that it's everybody else's fault except mine. I mean, we've heard this from political leaders in the past, but uh, there seems to be, at least anyway, evidence to the contrary there. Well, certainly, if you, I mean, if you read the book and you take out every time he says, "Well, that was a mistake," and this was, a, I should have done this different, and I shouldn't have held that press conference, and. Well, you know, it was uh, the fault of my advisors that told me to do it. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, political leaders are where the buck stops for a reason. They are responsible for the staff they hire. They are responsible for whether or not they take that staff's advice. You wear it at the end of the day. Surprise, surprise. That's how it works. But he characterized that, that, that period of time there where he knew CTV was going to run the story and then that the, that late-night uh, press conference at Queen's Park. Uh, you're, first of all, you're right. Nobody put a gun to his head and said, you have to do this. I mean, I, I'm sure he was advised to do this, but I mean, it was ultimately his decision. Uh, yet now he's just kind of rolling this whole thing back and saying this whole thing was, uh, was a manipulation by a whole lot of other people. But he still has the power as the leader of the party to, to withstand that and to push back, and he didn't. Well, he couldn't withstand it because the, the second that he got into trouble, the, as he points out, the, you know, the conservative knives came out for him. He was a weak leader. And 
to get pushed off your perch that easily when you're, you know, I, it, I think he, Mr. Brown has yet to appreciate that uh, he himself was the architect of his own demise in a great number of ways. Alan, was there any indication at all while he was still the leader that uh, that there were rumblings, that there was uh, a lot of discontent? Clearly there was in the caucus now. Yeah, we. I mean, we knew that that you know that there was discontent with uh, there were members within the the caucus. Randy Hillier, uh, Lisa McLeod, although not quite so vocally until after Brown was pushed out, but there were rumblings that we knew that there were members of the caucus who were not happy. Uh, you know, the cons- more conservative of the conservative caucus clearly not happy with uh, his plan on carbon capture. Uh, it, and and all of the problems with nominations, too. Let's not forget all the problems that were happening with nominations. And he kind of glosses over it in the book and says, well, I took a hands-off approach to this. This was the staff that was doing it. And again, this whole sense of like, well, you know, just because I'm the party leader, just because I'm the guy in charge doesn't mean I'm culpable, which I don't know if that washes. Well, that's not the narrative we heard, and as you know, one of them is right here in our backyard, the Ancaster riding, and there have been arrests made in a police investigation about that, so I guess that that hasn't been resolved yet, but uh, there, there was some pretty shady stuff that during that whole nomination process, not just here in Hamilton. No, right across the province, there yeah. were all kinds of problems where it looked like Mr. Brown was putting his, uh, you know, putting his fingers on the scales and tipping it this way or that way, or trying to bring someone, and it just... You know, there were just enough problems. And Mr. Brown, I interviewed him a number of times when he was still leader about this, and his position was, well, you know, everybody wants to run for us. It's a great problem to have. And I I think that the, you know, the bottom line is that that's not really the case. Well, I mean, even the uh, the writing, which eventually Donna Skelly won uh, for the PCs in the last provincial election, there was a great deal of controversy about the fact that she was pretty much handpicked to run there. Uh, and she was closely affiliated at that time with Patrick Brown. And so once again, that put fuel to the fire that, that he was manipulating this whole process. Yeah, and I think that's still all to, to play out. And he sort of glosses over that in, in his book but and takes much more time to accuse Lisa McLeod of all kinds of nefarious deeds, to, to smear uh, Vic Fideli, too, with a bit of a drive-by on terms of saying that Mr. Fidelli had dodged a bullet uh, of sexual um, sexual misconduct that was made against him when Brown was leader. Was there any credi- any credibility to that? I mean, my understanding is that that there was actually some letter uh, from somebody, I guess, uh, alleging something, but there was never any investigation, or was there? So Brown says that there was a letter left on his de- desk from a staff member addressed to him. Uh, alleging uh, sexual misconduct by Mr. Fideli, that he spoke to the person, the complainant, who was adamant that there would she would not participate in any investigation, and so nothing further happened. Um, there was no investigation. Nothing happened further while Brown was leader, other than he spoke to Fideli and said, you know, just stay away from this person. Then Mr. Brown writes in his book that after he was deposed as leader, uh, and Fideli took over as interim leader. This person, the, the the person who had made the accusation, was let go, but yet is still being paid by legislative services. Now, Global News has not been able to confirm independently the the, the payment purchase, but 
we do know there was an accusation. We do know that all of the, the previous things that I said are true. Mr. Fideli has put out a statement uh, saying that any accusations are absolutely false, and he's retained legal counsel and will sue anyone who makes any kind of accusation against him. So you, you, you may get a sense that I'm parsing my words carefully here. I'm just making sure I'm not going to get sued by Mr. Fideli. Uh, well, this is this is just a, a can of worms that uh, obviously, you know, on top of the, the Jim Wilson thing and a bunch of other things and the arts of deflection here, uh, a rather tumultuous time at Queen's Park. I know you're just about out of time. You've got to head into a meeting, uh, Alan. I appreciate you jumping in with us for a few minutes. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting Focus Ontario this weekend, though, isn't it? Yeah, and we have an extended interview with Brown talking about his book. Uh, It's the only place you'll see it on Focus this weekend, 5.30 on Saturday, 11.30 Sunday morning. Plus, keep in mind, we got the fall economic statement coming up this afternoon, and that is going to be huge news as well. Must see TV this weekend with uh, Focus Ontario. Thanks so much, Alan. Good talking with you again. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate being on. Alan Carter, anchor of uh, Global News at 5.30 and 6, and of course, Focus Ontario. Uh, a lot of pushback about this one, obviously, from Lisa McLeod and, and uh, Vic Fideli, two of the folks uh, who are uh, referenced uh, a great number of times in the book. Uh, Premier Ford has already responded to it and said the book is nothing more than a smear campaign and uh, Patrick Brown trying to get even and get back at colleagues with fabricated stories. Uh, it's going to be an interesting read, to be sure. And as I say, there's a, an air of litigation over this whole thing because Brown, of course, has a, a defamation suit against CTV News for uh, airing this story in the first place so many months ago. And uh, who knows what's going to happen as a result of this book. I mean, as people actually read through some of these passages and some of the accusations that are made and uh, some of the assertions from uh, Patrick Brown, uh, there may could, well, be other actions as well. By the way, uh, the Premier, uh, when asked by opposition uh, members yesterday, says, no, there's not going to be any investigation into this. It's not worthy of it. Uh, so anyway, I guess he's busy investigating the, the Jim Wilson and the texting thing that's going on at the same time. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, you heard from uh, Police Service Board Chair Lloyd Ferguson. Well, he is still technically the chair of the Police Services Board. But uh, city councilors are going to be meeting in just a couple of days, basically to decide who's going to sit on what committees during the upcoming term on council. They get sworn in in a couple of weeks, of course. And uh, Councillor Ferguson indicated to us at that time that he would not be seeking reappointment to the board. Uh, there have to be two city council representatives on the police services board. Actually, three, because the mayor is automatically a member of that board. Now, uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger is out of town, but we have understood that he is actually considering perhaps giving that seat up. Uh, he does have that option if he wants. I'm not so sure he, whether he's going to do that. But the citizen member that the city appoints uh, is also technically up because at the end of the, of the council term, those appointments are gone and everybody needs to be reappointed. Uh, the citizen member, as we know, is already under investigation and under suspension uh, for activities that we don't want to get into right now, but it's there. Uh, and technically, according to the rules, uh, he can't reapply to be reinstated to the board because he's under suspension. Uh, so he, I don't know what's going to happen with that, but this is an opportunity, I think, to, to maybe address some longstanding concerns in this community about exactly uh, who should be on that board and, and the kind of representation. Uh, we'll ca- talk about the council appointments in a second, but that one position uh, where the citizens, uh, uh, the city council actually appoints a citizen member is key at this stage. 
I want to bring Evelyn Myrie into the, com- the conversation. Evelyn, of course, is an exceptional community strategist, freelance columnist, and motivational speaker. And uh, uh, let's face it, very, uh, very much in tune and, uh, with what's going on in the community. Evelyn, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Well, thank you, Bill. We've talked a lot about some of the concerns that you and many others have had about the Police Services Board over the last number of years. Actually, it predates even this term of council, but uh, it, it just seemed to get ramped up a little bit, more than a little bit, I guess, at times, with some of the uh, things that were going on uh, vis-a-vis carding, debates about this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and the composition of the board has always been a concern to an awful lot of people. Mm-hmm. Talk, yes, to, yes. talk to me about that. You know, it's been a long-standing concern about representation, and all, let me say up front that when one speaks about representation, we're going to talk about competency because there's an assumption made that if you're racialized or you're from, if you're female, that you're less competent. We're not talking that the board should look for incompetent people. And uh, diversity and competency are not mutually uh, exclusive terms. So just to put that there, because that's a big response always. It has to be somebody who's competent, as though people of people from various backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, are not competent. So. I want to say that we're not pushing for anyone to be um, not to meet the criteria in terms of uh, the educational qualification and the like. So, so yes, uh, it's been a big concern uh, about, especially a city that promotes diversity and inclusion, and we call ourselves a welcoming community. But when we look around boards of the police services um, and many others, we do not see that diversity represented. So it's this time it presents an opportunity for us to really look at the appointment process for the people who make those decisions to use a equity lens in their in their um, debate and in their deliberations to to ensure that um, the people who serve us and our community represent the people who live in our community. Um, at least there should be an attempt to do that. We've just seen how many women have been elected in the states right now for much better than it has been in the past. But in the appointment process, we can also make intentional decisions to ensure that um, our community uh, decision makers are inclusive of the, the diverse uh, population that they serve. Okay. So I think it's a great time for us to look at that. All right, you, you've just outlined the, uh, the what you think the criteria should be for the, for the, the appointees in that situation. Uh, are you comfortable that that is the same set of criteria that city council use when they make that appointment? I'm saying that the criteria we should encourage the city councilors to look at a, use an equity lens when they make, do the analysis around who gets on the board. Uh, apart, uh, along with of course qualifications, we know that as a, as a, that's a, that's a number one. But at the same time, we have to make intentional decisions around making sure that this, the the appointees represent our community and has not in that way over the years, and we've been pushing that forward. Given the tensions, especially in the African-Canadian community with the police and the issue of carding and the issue of data collection and the like, I think it would be um, a proposed that we have uh, considered bringing people from, those community, from that community on the board as well to um, help to bridge that, that, that gap, that divide that, uh, that's out there. Um, and also help to to uh, as a as a pipeline to going into the communities a bit more intimately and to get to build um, to rebuild some trust. I mean, the recent incident that happened a few weeks ago, you know, with the the the, um, the policing and the um, the pastor also created some level of distrust. And I think it's it would be good for um, us to have the police services. Represent the community to show that there's, you know, we want we want to hear the voice 
all community members. We know it's a governance model. We know that at, when you sit around the table, that doesn't solve the problem. But it, it is one of the strategies that we can use to build trust and to ensure that we are, in fact, um, uh, best practice in terms of uh, representation. There has been a, a feeling, and I've heard this on this program over the last number of years, by some members of the community, though, Evelyn, that uh, that as city council was making some of those appointments to some of these boards and agencies, that political patronage uh, would supersede a lot of the other stuff that you just talked about. Do you share that concern? Yes, <laughs> very much so. It, that is a fact. That is an absolute fact. Uh, uh, and and let's and, and let's face it. By the way, let's just cast the net a little longer uh, and wider because I mean the provincial appointees. Let's face it; that's very much a uh, again. That's not to to cast aspersions on the people that were appointed because I no, think, no, no. But but it just seems that political patronage seems to play a major role in this, as opposed to uh, maybe being, that should we be down the list, and it just doesn't seem to be at this stage. Uh, so it you're asking, all you're, yeah, you're you're asking okay. this council now because they have an opportunity now to correct that. You're asking them to okay, let's. Forget about what happened in the past. What's, what's done is done. But let's move yes. forward in a different direction. I would love that. The horse trading needs to stop in that regard. So <laughs> uh, let, us, let us try to use a different model this time. I think they have an opportunity to reimagine how they do the selection. I know very competent people who have applied, uh, highly educated um, and, and all of that, and they didn't get a, you know, because somebody else had a deal in going, so... And over the years, over the years, I'm not. It, it has been noted by a number of persons who have applied in the past, and a shock that they, they didn't get an appointment because educationally, community-wise, everything they have a met, the metrics was check, 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 but they didn't have the social networks to get them that vote. In, in other words, <laughs> to boil it down to the lowest common denominator, sometimes it's who you know. Well, yeah, that's what we call it, social capital, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so let's let's see if we can turn the page. Are you comfortable with the fact that there, this is probably the the largest turnover we've seen in in, a, in an election for a municipal council in quite some time? A lot of new faces and hopefully some new perspectives on that. Do you feel comfortable about that? Well, I think we have some new people at the council that's push forward to that this kind of uh, representation because we know representation matters. It's Saddens me, though, quite frankly, as a, as a resident, as a Hamiltonian, to see the function of the police services. So whomever gets on board, they have a lot of work to do to make sure that they re, reconnect with the community, they uh, regain trust from the, our uh, stakeholders. Because right at the moment, it's pretty much in a disarray with all the investigations going on. So competency, um, Right now, we are troubled by what we've been seeing in terms of the various uh, allegations uh, by board members against each other, the dysfunction. So having people from various cultural communities who are competent <laughs> might be just a solution to help move this organization along. Well, and, and again, it starts with the city council themselves. As we just mentioned in our preamble, uh, next week they're going to meet and they're going to determine which city councillors are going to be on that uh, that board. And clearly there are going to be at least two new ones because uh, councillors Ferguson and, and Whitehead have said that they're not going to seek reappointment. So there's there's an opportunity for council to do something about exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, uh, I would encourage um, councils to apply a lens of equity when they do their appointments and hopefully those people will get on the, who have that analysis 
and that perspective will apply also to the police services from the, you know, put their names forward to be on the police services to shift this, you know, to, to drive this ship forward because we are pretty much stalled right now uh, at a governance level uh, for the police services. So, yeah, it's, it's important to have the right people around the table who ha- also have that analysis. So when they come to making decisions about the citizen representation, that, that's part and parcel of the analysis. Well, and, and, yeah, and that'll be the work of what they call the selection committee. And, and by the way, that's, that's one of the committees they're going to select next week. Uh, who's going to sit on the selection committee? And the composition of that committee, I think, would go a long way, Evelyn, towards doing what you were asking them to do here. Right. And that's, that's what we're hoping for. So we have received a number of phone calls at the Afro-Canadian Caribbean Association. I'm really surprised, actually, by the level of scrutiny that's taken place. Uh, by the community members who are calling and say, we make sure that we get that message out to people in the communities, uh, the various uh, multicultural and racialized communities to be, to put their names forward. We've never had, uh, my experience has been, it's never been so explicit. Like this year in particular, we've had so many phone calls uh, asking our organization to uh, encourage, support, you know, um, making sure that people know that this is, there, there are openings and that they should apply. So at least their applications are in. Well, and that's, that's going to be a key thing because, you know, when we've talked about this in the past on this program, uh, what I hear from a lot of the counselors is, well, you know what, well, we do that, but we just don't get that kind of application. We don't get those quality applications, and they don't come in in as many numbers as we would like to see. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not because we never see the applications. Right. But, but obviously, uh, to, to address that, uh, you've got to make sure that people actually sh- show that sort of commitment to do that. Are you comfortable that that's going to happen this time? I think so, I could, based on the numbers of calls you're fielding. Um, I think in the past there has been uh, application, maybe not as robustly, but as the police services um, is, have a very important role to play and people become more knowledgeable about the police services and making it more accessible based on the community service that they've been doing, the outreach to police um, the police has been doing a lot of outreach over the years with ethnocultural communities, so people are more knowledgeable that they can apply, even though they know politically it has been a barrier. So I see, I think more and more people are willing to put their names forward um, now, I'd say more than, say, um, maybe 10 years ago. But I know in the last couple of rounds there have been a number of racialized people who have put their names forward, and some of them have said, I'm not going to bother because... It's, it's already a done deal. I'm just wasting my time putting my application in. And, and they, so, were prob- they were probably right at that time. Yes. but Sadly. That they, yeah, exactly. So I'm hoping that this, uh, op- this is a great opportunity for the city councillors to reimagine how they do this work and their, and their selection. And if we really want to make Hamilton a city of excellence around inclusion, it's important that we take uh, the appropriate steps to apply a lens that would ensure representation of qualified persons, of course. <laughs> I keep saying that because there's always just like, well, they have to be qualified, as though if you're racialized, you're not qualified. So I want to say that over and over again. Well, hopefully, but, that, yeah, maybe it'll start to resonate if you say it often enough. <laughs> uh, that, right. that's, it's, it's like anything else. You just keep bailing with it, and eventually it's maybe going to sink into some of the people that are making these choices. Uh, right. Is, is, do you have somebody in mind? Have, have you talked to people about actually applying? Is Are there people that you would like to see on that board? Oh, I'm not going to say who I'd like to see, but I know that there are people applying. Um, professors, I know one professor in particular, um, who we're hoping that he'll put his, his resume back in. It was in before, um, in the last process. And there are other 
community business people who we are encouraging to put their names forward as well. So, and, and, and that's going to, as I say, that's not going to be done next week. I just want to remind uh, people that may have some idea that maybe they want to do this. November 30th is a deadline. Yeah. We have, <laughs> we, our organization has a couple of packages that they've picked up for a couple of members uh, because you have to get a package at City Hall to, 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 to be completed by the individual. So um, there are a couple of people who, uh, from our organization who, who picked a couple of them up to consider putting their names in. So you've actually talked to some people that were disappointed and frustrated with the system in the past, and maybe they have a renewed interest in it now? I would like them to <laughs> consider coming back because they feel as though it, the process was already pre- predetermined the last time around, and they felt that they're not going to waste their time. So I, I think that there's been a big cry out for the last year, especially, around the lack of representation and the way the police services have been um, selected in the past. So I, I, I have this faith, I <laughs> suppose, that there is things, things are going to be changing. Uh, and with a new council, um, that I'm, very ho- I'm hopeful. Like, you know, when you do this kind of work as community development person, you have to be optimistic. So uh, when I'm totally negative, then it's time for me to go. <laughs> so I'm optimistic that change will take, change will, change will come soon. We- well, uh, the glass is half full, I guess, and, you know, with uh, new council comes new opportunities. Uh, and uh, the, the worst case scenario here is, is the same old, same old. And, and obviously, I, I think there has to be some change. We know there's going to be at least two changes now because of the councillors, but the quality of the councillors, obviously, they're going to be selected to that is going to be a factor in this, too. Evelyn, we will wait and see just how they respond to this uh, in the uh, weeks ahead, but I do appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Thank you for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Evelyn Myrie from... Uh, of course, uh, motivational speaker and uh, community strategist. Uh, and and it's, it's an opportunity. I mean, she's absolutely right. City Council in the past has been accused, and I think with some justification, of filling an awful lot of these citizen appointments with folks that have maybe worked on the campaign or, you know, were friends of or any number of different things. In other words, there was a connection there in some way, shape, or form. And it was, okay, oh, wow, what committee would you like to sit on? Okay, I'll make that happen. Uh, and, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours with the guy that you want or the lady that you want to put on whatever board. And and that's that's politics. I get that. But at the same time, you've got to put the best interests of the community ahead of that. And clearly, from the conversation we just had with Evelyn, clearly from the conversation we had yesterday with Councillor Ferguson, who's leaving the board, there's a lot of per- concern, a lot of legitimate concerns. And by the way, at both ends, I've talked to some frontline officers over the last little while that don't want to go on the record, obviously, that have got some concerns about about management and about the way things are going right now with the, the police services. So there's there's some huge challenges here, but there's also opportunity. And it all starts with who actually gets selected to be on that board. And don't have much control, no control, really, over the provincial appointees, uh, both of whom, by the way, I think have done an outstanding job, but there will be another provincial appointee coming up, uh, we're told, anyway, later on this year, so hopefully the province will take that to, to heart, too, when they make their appointment. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just about yesterday, just about this hour, we were talking with uh, some business folks from business uh, associations here in town that were expressing some concerns about the lack of information they were getting from the province. And frankly, the city of Hamilton has, has chimed in on this, about the lack of information from the province about how the, the cannabis uh, distribution is going to win out. Of course, it's online right now, but eventually stores are going to be allowed. And, uh, you know, what's the separation between them? Uh, close to schools, et cetera, et cetera, hours of operation. Amazingly, it was just hours after that that uh, the province came out with an announcement. 
And uh, some folks are, are still very concerned about uh, how this is going to roll out. Joining us to talk about this is Brad Poulos, who is an instructor at the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. Uh, Brad, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Morning, Bill. Let me ask you, just as an overall picture here, are you, are you pleased about the way that the province is, is, is handling this whole issue from, uh, from the legalization, obviously, but to the distribution thing? I mean, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of complaints from business people right now that's saying, look, at, we're getting this piecemeal right now. We're not getting a very clear picture. Well, I think now we've got a pretty good picture. Um, I, I admit that the timing is a little bit disappointing, so the amount of time that this has taken. So um certainly would have to agree with the other folks about that point. But if you actually look at the content of the announcement that was made yesterday, I think it's pretty reasonable. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's pretty standard now to create separation between stores and things like schools and the like. Nowadays, although I think the argument for doing that is kind of weak, but but nonetheless, it plays really well politically. So, so no surprise seeing that in there. Everybody expected there to be some caps on individual companies and how much concentration of the market would be allowed to be held by any one. So we're seeing now a cap in Ontario of 75 stores for any individual company. Most people actually expected, uh, in the industry I'm talking um, expected that to actually come out as a percentage of the total. But this is actually a lot easier for companies to plan for because now they're not looking at some X percent of some unknown total. Now they know they can go up to 75 stores. And I really think that's important because, um, one, you want to limit the total because we don't want to have too much concentration and end up with the equivalent of the LCPO. Um, so you want to keep the numbers, you know, we want to spread that out across several companies. But at the same time, you have to allow them to get to a certain size. Uh, scale is going to matter in this game. So 75, I think, is a great number. I want to talk about that separation, the radio separation of the school, because you're right, that was a very contentious point. And, and it actually became so uh, during the election campaign last spring uh, when, when uh, Doug Ford, the candidate, uh, chided the, the, the Premier Kathleen Wynne at the time because she was promising to have a 450-meter separation. And he was suggesting that was too close. Now they've come up with theirs, and and it's obviously slightly it's 150. But is is this really a non-issue as far as you're concerned? I mean, Absolutely. first of all, kids, it's all kids, it's 100% kids kids aren't going to be allowed in the store anyway. Exactly. There's no there's no evidence to say that uh, co-locating a cannabis school with a, or a cannabis store with a school would increase use by young people. There's all kinds of rules to limit their access to the product and to the store itself. So I really think it's just simply politics and, quite frankly, an arbitrary number. Well, I mean, I, I had greater concerns years ago when we lived in an older neighborhood here in Hamilton, and there was a variety store right across the road from the school our kids were going to that was selling bongs and, and you know, hookah pipes and everything else. And I figured that's that's a little too much. But uh, th- this is the product. And, and like you say, there's... Uh, I guess the counterbalance to that, really, Brad, is is the restrictions that are available for the people that can even walk through the door of one of these places. Well, that's absolutely right. And, you know, if you think about um, tobacco, which is arguably a much more dangerous product on so many levels, um, we don't, we allow companies to locate right beside a school and sell tobacco. We allow 19, sorry, 18 and 17 and 16 year olds to walk into stores that sell tobacco. Same thing with alcohol, by the way. Not only that, we actually display the alcohol. Well, sure. And I mean, you can go into the LCBO right now with your little five-year-old in tow. I mean, they can't buy anything, but I mean, it's there. Uh, you cannot go into one of these stores uh, if you're under the age of 19. That's all there is to it. That's right. Even though there's no product displayed, it's all behind, you know, behind the counter. 
Are, are, are some of the concerns, Brad, are some of these concerns simply based on on, on this this old mythology that many people still have that this is this is this is bad stuff. This is the theory. This is these are you know these are not good. This is illegal stuff, and it's always going to be illegal stuff. And the people that sell this stuff are just no good. And uh, I, I mean, you've heard all these things. I'm I, getting into the reefer madness thing, but I mean, I think that's, a, that's something that some people are still hanging on to. We still live in a very Victorian province in many ways, Bill. And I think our attitudes toward cannabis are certainly uh, fall into that category. So that's exactly what it is. It's not based on any evidence. The uh, the other th- stuff that they've talked about here uh, is, is rather interesting. I'm interested in the store hours as well. Uh, it was uh, Caroline Mulroney, of course, that, that came up with the announcement yesterday. Of course, she's the minister in charge of, of, of this file. Uh, and the uh, stores are going to be allowed to serve customers from 9 a.m. until 11 p.m., seven days a week. Um, mm-hmm. and, and which I find rather interesting because she drew the analogy when she made that announcement, Brad, that this is very much in keeping with uh, the access to alcohol, in other words, at LCBO stores. Uh, it's actually a little more lu- uh, flexible than the LCBO stores, and now I'm hearing that the uh, companion announcement might, uh, might be is that they're going to actually allow uh, some of the LCBO stores to stay open until 11 o'clock, which heretofore they haven't been able to do. That's exactly what I've heard as well, Bill. Yeah, so I think we will see a marriage of those which makes perfect sense. It takes a lot of arguments out of people's hands if you just simply harmonize the hours for both. Well, and it goes back to your point about us and our Victorian attitudes, doesn't it? Yeah, I think the fact that we regulate the hours at all does. Yes, absolutely. I, I wonder if we really need to regulate the hours, how how much societal harm would be caused by stores that decide to stay open till 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, I guess that well, we won't know. <laughs> Well, because there's, there was some discrepancy with that anyway. I mean, even with to, just to go back to the LCBO store hours for just a second, uh, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, it, it varies, I guess, uh, it, depending on which part of the town you're in. But if you're up in cottage country in some of these remote areas where they have these these uh, satellite stores, you know, inside some variety stores or whatever, hardware stores in some cases, uh, they were allowed to sell the stuff till midnight in in some cases. Simply, uh, So there was a discrepancy. So well, what this is really doing is harmonizing, and I don't think that's a bad thing. No, no, n- neither do I. Although I do question the need to regulate the hours w- at all. Um, however, this is what the government's decided to do. So at least they've, they've made the hours reasonable in the sense that most people should be able to access their cannabis sometime between 9 a.m. and 11 p.m. Yeah, and, and depending on the stores. Are, are you concerned about the number of stores? I mean, when I talked to some of the BIAs here in this area, Brad, they were expressing some concern that, look, we don't want to see 18 or 20 of these things in, in a small area. I, I, uh, you love to have competition, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning of our conversation, but at the same time, uh, you know, I think, some again, people have this concern that there's always gonna, all of a sudden going to be this plethora of new stores going to be popping up selling marijuana. Well, I mean, I think what will happen is stores will pop up and they will satisfy demand. And in places like downtown Hamilton or downtown Toronto or the like, you might see relatively high concentration in certain pockets. But you're not going to see that happen in the suburbs. They, they, there's just not enough business to support, you know, the kind of number of pot shops that people seem to be imagining are occurring. There are a lot of ca- cannabis smokers out there, but there's not that many. 
when this was announced, uh, when the federal government announced that they were going to do this, uh, and of course that deadline's coming to pass now, it was the middle of October that this actually became legalized, uh, one of the stated purposes, and, and I'm not sure, sure how high it was on the priority list, was to make sure that this, uh, this had a direct impact on the black market. In other words, they wanted uh, pot users to go to these legitimate stores and to stop buying it from whomever they're buying it from right now. Uh, does does the the new wrinkles that the the Ford government put in here does that get them in that direction? The Ford government has to work within the federal um, framework, so I think you know there are a couple of things that you have to get right if you want to achieve that goal that you mentioned about um, eliminating or reducing the effect of uh, or sorry the participation of of organized crime and, and cannabis, there's really a couple of things you have to get right. So one is you have to have access and pricing and all of that stuff, stuff right. And that, of course, would be, that's Doug Ford's file. So you have to have lots of stores available at, with good hours and have to have the right price and all of that. Do you check but that box? government, sorry. Does that, does that, what they announced yesterday, does that check that box for you? I think it does a decent job of that. It's up to the private sector now to step up and build the stores. Yeah. So, um, but but I think I don't think we can fault the government too much for the the policy they put out yesterday. But the the federal government, you know, they they determine what products can be sold, and that's actually I think the bigger Achilles heel for the legal industry um, for the next little while until we see the development of the uh, um, you know the derivative products such as such as edibles and and beverages and and topical creams and sprays and and the like. And, and obviously they've got some homework to do on that. Well, you're probably aware the government has put a moratorium on those products for the first year of the yeah. cannabis legalization, so we're, we're limited to really just flour and oil. Uh, so, you know, people who have really become, come to, um, you know, the relationship with cannabis is really more about edibles and the like. They're going to stay in the legal system for, for, you know, the time being. But isn't that a double standard, though? Because, I mean, if for medical marijuana, they have access to those products, don't they? No, they do not. No, oh. the, the licensed producers uh, don't sell any of those sort of things. Uh, they anybody, including a medical or or just a medical patient or just a regular person, you can make your own edibles. You can buy some cannabis from the Ontario cannabis store and then make some butter or 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 infuse some olive oil or whatever on your stove. It's it's quite safe. A lot of people do it, but it's a heck of a lot of work and it can stink up your house. What about supply? I got to ask you about that because I've even seen stories in the last couple of weeks now, Brad, that said, "Look, with the advent of the stores, and it's not going to happen yet because it's just online at this stage in Ontario." But when that does occur, uh, even some of the people that, that are in the medical marijuana business are saying, "I don't know if there's going to be enough supply to handle the the demand that's going to be out there all of a sudden." Yeah, there, it's a legitimate concern for the near term. I think it's uh, it's quite sort of ironic and sad if you're a CEO of a cannabis company because right now the pressures on you hugely to get some capacity built and and you know increase your ability to deliver cannabis to the various distributors across Canada um, but in a couple of years we may end up with a glut so we'll hope that export markets and these other derivative products will create a you know a, a ready market for that that cannabis there's sort of a it's an interesting position to be in if you're a CEO well, we've seen some of the movement of, uh, in that end already. I mean, even locally here, there's a hydroponic business that's uh, just bought a huge, huge property uh, just outside of Stony Creek, and, and they'll be moving in there pretty shortly. And I'm seeing construction in, in various parts of the province already, Brad, of these monstrous uh, operations. 
that obviously I'm, I'm told are going to be for that direct purpose. I know they're building one just outside of Collingwood on the way to Blue Mountain, and there's a couple of other ones on in that area as well. One in Barrie, I think, that just uh, started up a little while ago. So obviously the industry itself is preparing, and they're ramping up for this. They, oh, they absolutely are. Um, the question is, when they build all of this capacity, will we at that point have too much? I think the conventional wisdom is if we're just trying to satisfy Canadian domestic demand, we likely will. So we'll rely on um, these other derivative products, and hopefully by that time we'll be allowing Canadian companies to develop brands that will maybe have a more of a international appeal and that we'll have a, a ready market for this cannabis, as I said. As, as more data becomes available, and there was a related story about this uh, just this week, that uh, in jurisdictions where they have legalized uh, pot, that uh, they don't see any major increase in traffic fatalities or traffic involvement or drivers involved that are high, uh, at least as of yet anyway. Uh, and, and as these stores come up and people tend to find that, okay, you know what, the, this was much ado about nothing. This is no big deal. It's just another small business selling that kind of product. Uh, is that going to assuage a lot of these concerns that are here now? I think so. I think in the fullness of time, we'll absolutely see that um, the sky will not fall. And the people that are really worried about this, mostly it comes from ignorance, by the way. You know, they're just not familiar. Their life didn't involve cannabis before October 17th. Um, you know, they'll see that it really doesn't change society in, in a huge, huge way. And, and it's not the big deal that they expected it to be. But we're going to have to wait until April 1st and, in fact, beyond that for that to happen. Well, the, the last national survey I saw, I think it was the Danos folks that did this, I think it was 75% of the people that were surveyed said, look, if, if we've never done it. We're not. This isn't going to change. We're not going to run out and say, yeah, I'm going to start doing pot now because it's legal. Uh, if you're doing it, you're doing it. If you're not, you're not. There may be some people that move over to, to start using it as a, as a matter of fact, but it's not as if there's going to be this great big huge rush all of a sudden. That's absolutely right. If you think about it, cannabis has been de facto decriminalized in Canada for several years. Yeah. Um, People, there are very few people who didn't use cannabis prior to October 17th merely because it was illegal. Well, it's uh, interesting to see how things roll out, and, and obviously we'll, uh, we'll see how. I know there's some problems with the online stuff, but I mean, the, the, these are all going to be growing pains, and, and, and obviously when you've got Chambers of Commerce and another uh, series of uh, very legitimate organizations that are supportive of this, uh, the, I guess the next big step now is for the municipalities to opt in or opt out, and that's a decision I know Hamilton Council has to make pretty sure shortly. That's right. They, they have until January 22nd to yeah. decide whether they're in or out. Well, uh, hopefully it'll be an educated decision when they uh, they have to actually make that decision. Brad, I really uh, got to jump in here. We're just about out of time, but thanks so much for the time today for, for clarifying, I think, some of the issues that, that seem to be getting batted back and forth here. Really appreciate that. Anytime, Bill. Take care. Brad Pullis, who is an instructor at the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. Uh, Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, by the way, is urging City Council to opt in. Uh, they look at this as a great business opportunity. Other chambers of commerce echoing the same thing. I haven't heard of too many communities that right now that are saying no. I know Markham, uh, just outside of Toronto, has already said no. They don't want to involve themselves at this in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but uh, I think just about everybody else is going to be on board. So it's going to be interesting to see how it just rolls out, and, and especially how it's going to have an impact on the business community here in Hamilton. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.